Living Time and the Integration of the Life by Dr. Morris Nickel. If you have stuck it out this long, then you know, finally, what Living Time and the Integration of the Life now means. You're now getting a feel for what he really is talking about. There's so much in the title that when you read the title, you go, what the heck? just doesn't make any sense. But now, hopefully, it's beginning to make sense. It's beginning to have meaning for you, and you're beginning to understand better what he's up to, what this is really about. We left off with this inner memory in which there is such wealth of detail must have another explanation. So we will pick up with a division of memory into two kinds has been described by Swedenborg. If you've ever read Swedenborg, then that would account for the puzzled look on your faces because the guy wrote stuff and you go, whoa, seriously? I was introduced to Swedenborg back in 1972, I think. Right around the same time I was introduced to this stuff. And it was like, wow, okay, you have to be very picky about what it is of his you read, because if you dive in too quickly, you will drown. That would be sad, because there's so much there in Swedenborg that to drown right in the beginning because you weren't prudent would be a waste, because then you'd give it up. He divides memory into exterior and interior. The former he connects with what he calls the outer man, the latter with the inner man. Nothing, he says, perishes, though things are obliterated to the exterior memory. Such is the interior memory that the very least details of what a man has thought, said or done, from earliest infancy to old age, are inscribed upon it. I have told people, and I will tell you now again, be mindful of what you say and think, because your subconscious mind is like a secretary, and it is taking things down. Everything that you say, everything is being recorded. Everything is kept. It hears everything. So when you say you're going to do something and then you don't do it, your subconscious mind heard you, wrote it down, and now thinks you're full of crap. So that's what the subconscious mind is like. Also, there's one other thing that you need to know about your subconscious mind. It can't take a joke. It's literal. It takes what you say literally. Just like if you were in court giving a deposition. Or just like if you were in an attorney's office giving a deposition. I remember I was in an attorney's office one time giving a deposition. And they asked me something, and I answered, and I miscalculated. I said yards instead of feet. But they didn't care. There was no changing it. That was it. That was my testimony, and that's what they hung me on. The subconscious mind is like that. It really is impartial. It's not like an attorney. Attorneys are not impartial. But it is impartial. It just goes by what it hears what you said. So be mindful of what you say. You should be keeping your word anyway. Anyone who doesn't keep their word is not really a man, meaning not even approaching what a man should be. And when I say man, I mean man, woman. All his aims, which were in obscurity for him, and all that he has thought, said, or done through them, are in that book which is his interior memory. I'm calling it the subconscious mind. But actually, it's probably the soul that is recording all this. He observes that the book of life mentioned in the scriptures, which is opened at death, is just this interior memory. If we connect this interior memory with the extension of our lives in higher dimensions, we can understand that the book of life is the book of the life. It is the life itself, lying in time itself as a long-living organism, inserted at one point of itself, through brain and body, into the present moment of passing time. I will refer you back to that lovely example that he gave us of the two-dimensional piece of paper and the pencil passing through it. 
So here is this pencil, and the pencil can represent the life. But what we are seeing inserted at one point through brain and body, that is where we are now, is just like this cross-section of that pencil. So to the two-dimensional paper people, that's all there is. So to our brain and body, this moment is all there is. But that does not change the fact that the life is there, completely there, the whole thing, even though we're only seeing one sliver of it, even though we're only experiencing one sliver of it. Ecclesiastes speaks of man at his death going to his long home, because man goes to his long home and the mourners go about the streets. Chapter 12, verse 5. Taylor Lewis says that the Hebrew Beth Olam might be translated as house of the life. It certainly does not mean the grave. The body goes to the grave. The man enters his life. This long organism, his long home, his indestructible time. This is why if you get a taste of death, you really no longer fear death because you actually got a taste of life apart from the body, life extended beyond the body. And then it's really hard to fear death. Very difficult to fear death. But some people can still do it if they work at it. And working at it means living like an idiot now. Breaking as many natural laws as you're able to break. Because, well, I'm going to keep on living. Yes, you will. But in what state? As you soil your soul, as you soil your mind, as you soil your emotions, as you sully your being, what state will you exist in? What will it take to purify that? And how long will it take to purify that? It may not seem important what you do now, but it is important what you do now. It's very important. As I said, every part of this long organism must act and react on every other part because beginning and end are coexistent. Here's the pencil. Every part of this pencil acts on every other part of this pencil because it's coexistent. Even though the paper people are only seeing this cross-section, this sliver, it's coexistent, the whole thing, from one end to another. Whatever we do now must affect what we call past and future. We cannot understand how the past can be altered unless we comprehend our existences through the power of this idea about time itself. All right, we're going to go to chapter 6 now. And hopefully it will help you to understand this idea about time itself. The Hermetic writer, who advises the practice of thinking that we are living at all points of the life, remarks that in this way a man begins to be changed into eternal substance. What is behind this statement? Why is the notion of eternity, whatever that means, connected with thinking this all of the life? We need to get rid of some false meanings that we give to the words eternal and eternity. This is always the case in moving forward. You've got to clear off the table. You've got to get rid of the false ideas. You've got to empty out the glass before you can wash it. Empty it out, wash it thoroughly, and then start to put the new whatever it is in it. The psychological idea connected with eternal life cannot be limited to the view that man is changed into another state at death, merely by the act of dying. This is one of the most bizarre things that I've ever heard. This idea that you die and you go to heaven, or you go to hell. Seriously? You really think that if you walk from one room to the next, you're going to be totally different? Have you ever walked from one room to the next in your house and been a different person, not recognized yourself when you got to the other room? No, it's the same thing. So how this idea came about, I don't know. I don't know how it came about. But to me, it seems bizarre that people not only believe this, but then they go pounding Bibles and preaching this as if it were true, as if it were possible. It just isn't. It doesn't happen that way. Nothing happens that way. 
When you have a birthday, what happens? Do you look any different? No. You look the same as you did the last time you looked, or the time you looked a week ago. And are you going to look any different in a nanosecond? No. It doesn't make any difference at all, because it's just this ceremonial thing. It has nothing to do with reality. When I say reality, I mean reality, not what we call reality. It would be far more correct to say that it refers, first of all, to some change that man is capable of undergoing now, in this life, and one that is connected with the attainment of unity. This whole idea of Jesus was the kingdom of heaven is within you. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, meaning it is a process. It's not a place that you get to when you die. It is a process. And unless you are in process, you are not in it. The modern term psychology means literally the science of the soul. But in former times, there actually existed a science of the soul based upon the idea that man is in an imperfect state, but capable of reaching a further state. Man can perfect himself. And perfect himself is in quotes because it isn't something you can really do alone. You can't really perfect yourself. But you have a certain duty in the perfection of yourself. To use the psychological language of the New Testament, he can reach another state of himself, not by ordinary education, however efficient it may be, but by a special kind of education, one not given by life, not to be found in the ordinary paths of life. You can make the grave just fine without ever even bumping into this second education, this higher education. You don't need it to die. You don't need it to eat. You don't need it to breathe. You don't need it to make money in life. You don't need it. You only need it to develop beyond what life would develop in you. Life sees you as an animal, a physical being, governed by physical laws, living in a physical world. But you are more than that. This second education was the original task of philosophy in its ancient and practical meaning. It had reference to the unfinished, uncompleted state of everyone in life, not just the elect, wherein we find ourselves in disharmony, one-sided, and full of contradictions. Man is no more a unity. The inward unity or harmony of his existence is disintegrated into a diversity of autonomous functions. No totality act is possible. The will is separate from knowledge. The feeling is separate from intellect. Empirical psychology has to do with this disintegrated man, never with the integral. This modern writer, Emil Brunner, The Word and the World, 1931, observes that the reintegration of man into a unity requires ideas and efforts that lie outside the field which psychology ordinarily concerns itself with. Modern-day psychology is not concerned with this. Modern-day psychology is, you know, what? Marriage counseling and blah, 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 how to get along with people and so on and so forth. Well, this is entirely different. I would express this by saying that the unity of man is impossible on the level of consciousness which he uses. Our ordinary consciousness, the one that we use, it is impossible for us to develop beyond that with that ordinary consciousness. Something else has to happen. Our natural state is internally one of confusion, even insanity. And if you don't believe that, look at the world. If you don't think the world is insane, you're not keeping up. They're beheading people and putting the videos of it on YouTube. And people in our own country and other countries are saying, wow, how cool, let's go join them. And they're going and joining them. And if you don't think that's insane, then... Like I said, you're not keeping up or you're insane. We do not notice this distinctly. People don't know that they're insane. You do not know you're insane. Not distinctly. 
Now, while this internal condition of man at the ordinary level of consciousness has been clearly realized from earliest times, what particularly characterizes the early standpoint of practical philosophy was the view that there was a perfectly definite further state of a seed, or a chrysalis. Man could not merely become better, a better social being or person more adapted to life, but he could become something quite different. This is the insanity of Christianity today, that people think it makes you a better person. No, this is not about becoming a better person. This is about becoming an entirely different kind of being. It's not about being a better person. It's not about fixing up the house. It's not about a new paint job or a new roof or new tile or new anything. It's about a complete and utter transformation into a different kind of being, from caterpillar to butterfly. We find this central idea running through all esoteric teaching. It blows me away that people are so narrow-minded that they can't see this running through all esoteric teachings. That fourth-way people poo-poo Christianity, and Christians poo-poo the fourth way. And I think, are you people blind? Can you not see that this whole thing is an organic whole? Can you not see that it's like a guitar? You strum the strings on a guitar and it gives you a chord. But if you strum just one string on a guitar, there is a sympathetic harmony on the other strings that gets them to vibrate along with it. This is the same thing. It's all connected. It's all part of the same thing. And I think it's just tragic that people have all of these, no, we're E strings, and no, we're low E, no, we're high E, no, I'm a G string, no, I'm a B string. Really? You don't get it. They don't get it. And so they fight about it. Well, I'm better than you, and this is better than that, and that's the truth, and this isn't the truth. E strings are the only truth. A strings, G strings, B strings, they're not true. And of course, all the A's, G's, and B's are saying the same thing. It's just insanity. We find the central idea running through all esoteric teaching, whether in the New Testament or elsewhere. Man can perfect himself, become complete, become a whole being. And as we shall see later, eternal has this significance. To lay hold of eternal life referred to some possibility in this life, to some change that a man could undergo here, or at least begin to put himself in the way of it. From this deeper standpoint, no true psychology of man can exist without this goal being recognized as the aim. If you don't know what your purpose is, whatever goals you have are not going to work. They might accidentally work. It might accidentally go along with your purpose. But unless you have a clear idea of what your purpose is in life, can you see that you're just wandering in the weeds? Oh, you may happen upon something. You may stumble on something. But how will you know to recognize it or not? And, you know, there's a parable about that. It's like the man who found the pearl of great price, and he went and sold everything and bought that pearl because he knew he had an aim. So he recognized it when he found it. It was the guy who found a treasure in the field. He went and sold everything and bought the field so that he could have that treasure. So it's like that. You have to have that aim before you will be able to see the significance of your life, before you'll be able to set any goals to reach that aim. And all the various psychological findings about man, however contradictory, can only gain their proper relation and proportion when drawn together under this supreme head. When you have your ultimate aim, when you know what you are for, what you are for, why you are here, then everything can be drawn together under that. It can be all brought under that roof. Until then, it's potluck. 
The end of man is the attainment of this further state of himself. His real explanation lies in this fact. He is only to be understood through this end. You will never understand yourself until you understand what your purpose is. A toaster will never understand until it understands what its purpose is. Its purpose is to toast bread. It will never do it well until it understands that. Now, of course, a toaster is never going to understand that. It's a machine. But you'll need to understand it so that you don't put CDs and DVDs into it and then push the lever down because it's going to ruin the CD or the DVD and it's going to gum up the toaster. So that's not the purpose of it. And you need to know the purpose before you can use it efficiently and effectively. All the different parts of him, like the separate parts of a machine, are not understandable or relatable unless the final aim and meaning of the whole is grasped. Unless you know what a toaster's for, what are you going to do with it? What, you're going to heat your room? So here you put it down as a hand warmer. You push it down and you hold your hands over it. You warm your hands and then you keep pushing it down so you keep your hands warm. Do you see what I'm saying? It's it radiant heat. So you can use it for other things. You could use it to dry your hair. Dangerous, admittedly, but you could. All of these things you could do if you don't understand its purpose. Otherwise, one investigator takes hold of one part, and another takes hold of another part, and in each case gives the significance of the whole to the part, so that only contradiction and, what is much worse, a malinterpretation of man result from that. The example of the five blind men or the four blind men trying to describe what an elephant is. One gets the tail and he says, oh, it's a rope. One gets the trunk and he says, oh, it's this big stake. One gets the leg, he says, oh, it's a tree trunk. Do you see? So they determine what the whole is by the part. It doesn't work. So you end up with either contradictions. It's not a rope, it's not a snake, it's not a tree trunk. So you have those contradictions. Or you end up with a bad interpretation of the elephant. You don't know what it is. You end up with something else as a result. This powerful idea about man's possible goal concealed in his nature dominated early religious and philosophical thought. A real, attainable goal was meant. The righteous man of the New Testament is not simply a kind, good man, any more than is Plato's just man. Such terms, which are synonymous, the original word being the same in each case, refer to one who has attained unity, to one who actually possesses what other people imagine they already possess, to one who dwells in another relation to what I call psychological space, on another level to a person who is internally not like us and not where we are. We occupy a certain psychological space. There is another psychological space above this psychological space. In the fourth way, we occupy the psychological space of men numbers 1, 2, and 3. There is another psychological space lies directly above that of man number 4. Then there is another psychological space that lies directly above that of man number five, and then man number six, and then man number seven. And that's enough for us. They refer to one who has generated himself, raised his entire nature, and discovered his real existence. You did not generate yourself. This self that you now have was generated, built by life, by the events in life, by the people you knew in life, by your parents, your first education ordinary education. You are not self-generated yet. You're working on it, but you are not there. And in a unique sense, become an individual. So much so that we constantly doing and saying and feeling entirely useless and meaningless things probably seem mad to him. Okay, just to give you an idea of what this is like. You have come so far in your self-generation. 
the New Testament would say, follow me in the regeneration. So it's regeneration, really. You are generating yourself. You are transforming yourself, or you are following in this transformative process. And it's cooperative. You must cooperate with the process. So you look at people who have not even begun this process, and you see what they are. Or you look, look at people who have quit the process and gone back. And you look at them and you go, wow, that is incentive to not quit, isn't it? You look at them as crazy. They gave this up for that? That's insanity. But they look at you and say, you're giving up your freedom? That's insanity. But unless you give up your freedom, you can't go anywhere. When you go to school, don't you give up some of your freedom to get educated? When you go to work, don't you give up some of your freedom so that you can gain higher freedoms, other freedoms? Yes. It's a trade-off. And there are certain times when you need to straighten yourself and discipline yourself so that you can expand. That's the purpose of education. So definite a state was meant that it was called a new birth from above. Whatever this means, we can at least say that this new birth denotes another kind of man, an attainment which remains an impossibility unless we come in contact with ideas above those that belong to our ordinary education. Nobody tells you this school. You don't get this. I don't care how high you get a PhD. You get a, a fistful of PhDs. They don't tell you this. You don't get that in that. You can spend your entire life getting PhDs. You can spend your entire life getting doctorates, writing theses, and not get this. For how can a man become anything greater unless he has not only the firm belief in something greater, but ideas that come from something greater? In the Greek, the word that we know in translation as eternal is ionios. Literally, the expression in the New Testament translated as eternal life is ionian life. The Greek word aion, eon, we call it eon, is translated usually by eternity. Many writers have in vain pointed out that these translations don't render the original meaning of the words. There's a reason for that. There's a reason they don't render the original meaning of the words. They are words that cannot be easily translated because they refer to conceptions that we no longer understand. We are stupid. We have lost. It's like you spend your life drinking, killing brain cells. Now, okay, admittedly, you got so many brain cells you're never going to use, you can go ahead and kill them. You know, you may as well kill them off because you're using, what, 10, 10% of your brain? The other 90% is just, like, on hold because you're retarded, and you're retarded by choice. You're retarded because it's easier to be retarded than it is to make effort to educate yourself, to educate that part of your brain, and to use that part of your brain. Because let's face it, this life doesn't demand it. And if it doesn't demand it, you're not going to give it. And if it doesn't come easy, you're not going to make the effort. I'm sorry that we are that way, but we are that way. And then, seated throughout the race, there are people who are not that way, to varying degrees. People who come in, and they're just progenies, child progenies, right off the bat, like Mozart, bam. Right off the bat, like Beethoven, bam. They're people who just have it, they're born with it. And then there are other people who are born with a little less, or a little something else. They have numbers, or they have, you know, whatever. They have something else. Idiot savants, we call them, among other things, because we're idiots. And when we don't understand something, we always give it some stupid name to show just how ignorant we really are. Well, they're idiots. Why? Because they're not like us? Well, yeah. I was watching a film the other night, last night, I think it was. John Malkovich was in it. They were these Siberians. It was, he played this Siberian grandfather. He was a criminal. 
and this whole criminal community. It's called the Deadly Code. It was fascinating because it was a section of society that we never really get to see. And they had their own prayers, and they would pray to the Blessed Virgin, only they would pray for criminals, and they had their own code. You didn't hurt crazy people. You took care of them. It was your duty to take care of them, and if you failed to take care of them, then you needed to make an atonement because you did not do what God wanted you to do. And it was beautiful. You know, now I'm sure that the violence would turn a lot of people off, but I'd look at that and i say it's only a movie, but I'm looking for the philosophy, the heart behind it. I'm looking for, what is it he called it? He called it the the thread or whatever running through all esoteric teachings. I'm looking for that. I'm always looking for that. I'm always looking for the bottom line. The bottom line is always that thread. It's always the foundation of the universe. It's always the heart and the will of God, which is always one and always the same, no matter where and how it manifests, in what time, what era, in what country, in what language. It's always the same thing. It's always the same purpose. That's the unity of the universe. And I'm always looking for that in everything. And I recommend that you do the same. Such difficulties indeed have been encountered in translating Eon or Ion and Ionios in the New Testament that we sometimes find them rendered by such different words as world, age, never, forever, everlasting, etc. The significance given suggests either a thing, a visible form of existence, such as world, or endless passing time, as in the translation, forever and ever. So you can see that we are limited by our sense-based mind. So the translators are always limited by their sense-based mind. And so that's why many writers have in vain pointed out that these translations don't render the original meaning of the words, because we have lost our ability to see beyond the sense-based world the sense mind. We already know that behind the changing world in time, behind the life of becoming, older thought put an unchanging world, an invisible reality beyond the process of time. But we have lost almost all touch with older thought. It's tragic. We only have scraps of older thought, little pieces here and there, like they find these old parchments and then they piece them together, painstakingly piece them together. And so much of it is destroyed and gone that they have to extrapolate from what they have to what it could be. So they have to fill in the blanks. It's with this higher order of reality behind time that we must connect the word eon, eternity. Eon does not refer to the three-dimensional world in passing time. It refers to an order of existence belonging to what we are calling higher space. Eon is not time, nor is it time itself but something overshadowing totality that comprehends all in itself. This is the kind of thing that just makes your mind go tilt. It's like, what? And it's because, as I said, our heads are waterlogged with garbage, with the stupid, ridiculous crap you fill your day with. You go home, you sit down in front of the tube, you turn it on, and you watch whatever. Do you really know what you're doing? No. When was the last time you sat down and read a book that was hard to read? Well, you have if you've read the books that I've recommended to you or that I put in the Dropbox, because I am constantly pushing. Because you need to sharpen your concentration. You need to sharpen your mind. You need to sharpen your vocabulary. You need to, you need to do this if you're going to walk this path. You need to exercise yourself. You need to make effort beyond ordinary effort that life requires of you. 
Life requires of you that you get up in the morning, that you wash yourself, that you brush your teeth, that you dress yourself, that you comb your hair, that you go out into the world, you do something useful and get paid for it, that you pay your bills, that you basically become a householder, hopefully a good householder. But that's where it ends. Life doesn't require anything else of you. It's happy to have you die and then gobble you up at the end. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. But there is more, a lot more. I'm trying to decide whether we should launch into the next section, and I'm thinking we probably should not, because it gets heavy here, and we really are running short on time, meaning we're not really running short on time, but meaning that in order to get to a good stopping place with what comes next, it's going to take another 30, 40 minutes and... We haven't been doing that because people don't have the ability to concentrate on something like this that long. Now, the podcast people can just stop it, pause it, and redo it and listen to it over and over again, but we're not doing that. We're doing this live. So, you know, I go until either you get a glazed look on your face, which sometimes happens, or until I know that if I go much further, your eyes will begin to glaze and your face will become passive and you'll start to wander. Or in Spanish, they say, fly, and you just fly in your mind. So it's, it's, so, it's so nice to know more than one language because you start to understand idioms and you start to understand ideas behind words. And it just expands your understanding of language and ideas and communication. You know what they say. If you speak two languages, you're bilingual. If you speak three languages, you're trilingual. If you speak one language, you're an American. And I think that's really sad. We live in a nation where you really can go so far, so far, and always speak the same language. And when you're in Europe, you go, you know, you can travel 30 minutes and you better know another language. It's a great thing to have such a great nation, but it has its disadvantages. Like everything that has its advantages, there, where there's a front, there's a back. Where there's an up, there's a down. So it has its disadvantages as well. But I recommend everybody, everyone, should learn a second language. Everyone should learn to play some kind of musical instrument. And I know that I've been saying this for over a quarter of a century, and I know that people don't do what I say, but I did. I can play a couple of instruments, and I can speak a couple of languages. And so I practiced what I preached. If you didn't listen and practice, that's on you, not on me. Truth is every